I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Lynn Reeves Griffin is a novelist and a nationally recognized expert on family life. Writing as Lynn Reeves, she's the author of the domestic suspense novels Dark Rivers to Cross and The Dangers of an Ordinary Life. Writing as Lynn Griffin, she's the author of the novels Girl Sent Away, Sea Escape, and Life Without Summer. Lynn has written the nonfiction parenting guide, Negotiation Generation, and teaches writing at Grub Street Writers. She has written short fiction essays and articles for Parenting Magazine, Child, Brain, Writer Magazine, Psychology Today, and many others. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you for having me. Tell me, why domestic suspense? Well, the novels that I've written thus far have all really shared the same core ideas, which is that in families, there are many things that are very, very challenging to talk about. And over the course of my career, as the world has become more complex, and as our lives have become more stressful, my fiction turned up the dial on some of the suspense and some of the psychology and some of the very complex issues that are at the heart of family life. So I think that they are just telling me that there are more deep, dark, emotional things for families to explore. Let's back up just a little bit. You've written short fiction essays and articles for everybody from Parenting Magazine to Brain. So I take it you have an interesting background prior to coming into writing. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I went to school for nursing, and then I went on to get my degree in education and counseling. I found that in my nursing career, I was often landing with families and trying to figure out both the parenting side of healthcare and the child side, the child development side, and what children were struggling with in their learning. And one thing led to another, and I just decided, you know what, I'm a counselor. I really want to take my background and help families figure out these tough subjects. But I've always been a creative person. So the creative side of me was still writing short fiction, and I tackled a novel at one point. And again, open to serendipity, one thing led to another, and my fiction started taking on that vibe of what families are struggling with. And now my fiction is really all about family life. You know, we tend to process things through storytelling. That's right. Doing both those things, those are kind of big jobs. If you think about what a nurse does, and if you think about what a counselor does, and when you think of what a novelist does, it's the same, right? It's underneath all of that is the human story and the way in which people express either what's happening to them in their health and in their livelihood, or what's happening in their family. Or we use story as a way to try to understand the world around us. So I think the core of all of those things that I do is storytelling. Tell us about your novel, Dark Rivers to Cross. Dark Rivers to Cross is a story about identity formation. It's about adoption. It's also about a lot of what we talk about today, which is inherited trauma. And I especially wanted to explore whether or not parents ever have the right to keep a traumatic origin story from their children. 
And so I decided that the best place to examine that would be, let's go all in and put a family in a wilderness setting where both nature and nurture must collide. And we have to see what this family will do with this very dangerous backstory and how they'll process it as individuals. So it's a story of a mother with two nearly grown sons. She runs a wilderness lodge where people come to get off the grid. And she has fabricated a story that she has told her children and it starts to unravel with the arrival of friends from her past. And the sons really don't know what to make of this. And of course the story is the unfolding of of what each of the sons does with this information. What was your research like? So with all of the work that I do and with all of the fiction I write, I I don't examine any one client in particular. So I always assure my clients that they're never going to show up in a novel. Um, But I listen for themes across the people that I work with. And what often comes up as a theme is that parents struggle with when to tell a child whether or not they're adopted, and then what their adoption story is. And they struggle the most when that story is complicated, when they're not sure that their children can handle that information. And so the longer parents put that off, the harder it is for the children to receive it. And so imagine in this story where you've got two 20-somethings hearing some of these pieces of information for the very first time and what that does to their relationship with their mother. It's very complicated. And one of the things that I write about and talk a lot about and Mm -hmm. is definitely covered in the themes of this story is that whether or not you know the full story, it's still operating in the background of your life. So for these two boys or young men, there's something about their lives that feels off, but they can't put their finger on it because they don't know what it is. It's being kept from them. It's being withheld. But there are a couple of things that are operating. One is there's some sort of genetic DNA vibe that something is off, but mm-hmm. there's also the way in which their mother has parented them that is off. And so it's, again, this nature-nurture influence on how we grow up, how we see the world, how we interact with the world. Because these young men are living in the deep woods of northern Maine, one of them is very in touch with the environment that he's living in, and one of them really rejects it, but doesn't know why. Through counseling, do you find that this is a truth that you run into, that people you don't know what's wrong with your body, you know, physical symptom. You don't know why you're having palpitations, but you go to the doctor and you find out. Do you find that this is a theme in your office? Absolutely. I think it's a theme in my office. It's a theme in my own personal life. Whatever experiences you've had, whether you've reflected deeply on them or not, they become part of who you are. There's a really important seminal work on the idea of trauma, and it's mm-hmm. called The Body Keeps the Score. I believe the author's name, and I hope I pronounce it correctly, is Bessel van der Kolk. I'm not going to tell you different. <laughs> All right. And But basically, it's this idea that our body pulls in information, even if it can't quite make sense of what that information means. And so that is really what the core of trauma is. Very young children who experience trauma have an experience that is ever-changing to both their chemistry and the way in which they live in the world. Whether or not they're aware exactly of what happened is really not 
is not often known to them. And, and in some cases never will be. In other cases, you know, it, it, it comes clear over time. Is it possible that people can actually become mentally unhealthy by avoiding confronting these things? Yes. And there's actually tons of research on the fact that that's true. The unexamined life, the unexamined emotional experiences of life can lead to physical illness because remember, it's all tied together, right? The way our body experiences things, the way our emotions do, how we navigate relationships, it's all tied together. In our world, sadly, we address physical health differently than mental health. And that is a huge mistake because they are not discreet. Um, And I think that's one of the things that I try to do in my fiction is I try to show the reader without being prescriptive how important it is to rethink some of these things. In Dark Rivers to Cross, I'm not suggesting that there's a particular way to go about any of this, but simply examine the way you're thinking about it. And if there's Mm -hmm. a reader out there that suddenly steps back and says, wow, this novel is really making me think about what I'm doing and about what I think about what the main character did, particularly the mother, because she's the one with the most agency in the story. Then I feel like I've done my job. I'm not trying to answer any questions. I'm just trying to pose them. So important to present something to readers that they can see, even if it's just a little piece of themselves in. How do you come up with the setting? How do you tackle that piece? So I really can never start a novel unless I know the setting, but it isn't the first thing that comes to me. So the first thing that comes to me is a character with a social issue dilemma, right? So I have written about addiction and I have written about family violence and I've written about grief over the loss of a child. I've written about a lot of the family social issues, Mm -hmm. but I can't really compose a story until I know where will this play out? And in what way does the setting or the environment make this more challenging for my characters or make it easier? And of course, I'm always looking for it to do both. In this particular story, for many, many years, my husband and I have taken our young children and now adult children up to Maine on our family vacations. And so it's a landscape that really speaks to me. It's very rugged. It's very beautiful. And it's also, it can be tough terrain in certain parts mm-hmm. of Maine, particularly the Northern Woods. And I'm very inspired by Thoreau. And, I, you know, I thought, oh, okay, well, there's a lot of setting to, to dig my teeth into here. And one thing led to another. And I knew that the story about family violence and the story about inherited trauma would fit in this landscape around nature and nurture so beautifully. And once I knew those pieces, I knew they went together. Tell us to make things as difficult as we can for them. And sounds like you've done that. Exactly. Because then we can see what they're made of, right? We can see how they interact with that environment and whether or not they'll let that be their undoing or it will help them triumph. You know, that's what's exciting to me. What's the significance of the title, Dark Rivers to Cross? So in the story, the characters will literally need to interact with the Penobscot River. So the wilderness lodge that they run is on the Penobscot. So the river itself will factor prominently into the story and the crises and the conflicts that they will need to face. It's also the way in which I decided to craft the novel. So in my mind, the novel is a bit of a river where as one character moves forward to find something else, somebody throws an obstacle in their path. And so the story itself should feel to the reader like a little bit of turbulent water. That's my hope. And then, of course, there's a dark character that they have to cross, 
there is a, a villain, if you will, an antagonist, someone that they have to confront. And so it's the metaphor as well. You know, that question where people go, where do you get your ideas? But I think so much of it is just in our subconscious. You don't know where the stuff comes from. It just shows up. And I can't imagine what someone who does what you do, what comes out of your subconscious. I mean, I'm sure you're just exposed to so many interesting scenarios. And it's funny because I think sometimes what happens is you'll get an inspiration, but it's not ready yet because it hasn't Mm -hmm. what it's to be matched with. So for Mm -hmm. example, with Dark Rivers to Cross, I always knew I wanted to set a novel in Maine, but I just didn't know which novel it was going to be and which characters needed to be there and which story needed to play out there. And suddenly when those pieces come and suddenly you're like, oh, these go together. (laughs) then you can start writing, right? So inspirations come from lots of different places, but sometimes they have to align or connect before it's time to get going. You bring up a good point. You know, I remember being a a newbie writer and thinking, oh, I've got these ideas and I don't want to save those for later because, you know, you're almost stingy with them. Like, oh, I've got to get these out. But then those are the manuscripts that... (laughs) We'll never see the light of day, but there are pieces in them that now I'm seeing, you know, five, six years later, I'm pulling out those pieces that are working in other novels. We get so stingy at the beginning. You've got to do it all right away. It takes a while to get there and know where those people fit and what story. Definitely. And what I'd also say to writers out there is that go forward with those ideas if it is to be explored in a manuscript and if it's not working feel free to put it aside because maybe it does belong to a later story, like you said. But it's also true that you can feel comfortable, and I think this comes with time, feel comfortable writing something and then dissecting it, only keeping some of the best gems. I probably wrote Dark Rivers to Cross three completely different times (laughs) because I really did have it in my mind that I wanted it to feel like a turbulent river. And so I didn't get it right the first time. I got closer the second time. And by the time I got to the third time, I thought, okay, now I got my river. Writers have to be comfortable getting rid of material and knowing that it's part of the discovery to write it, but you don't always need it. Well, patience is hard for any of us to learn. Probably every author has heard, you finish that manuscript and you just park it for a little bit. It just breaks your heart when someone tells you that. Or maybe this isn't the right manuscript for you. Go write another one and you feel like, my precious words I've wasted. When the time is right, the time is right. And I'm not sure they're ever wasted because you grow as a writer and you grow as someone who observes the world. So I think that even writers that have novels in drawers or under their bed, they're growing as a writer because you learn so much about the process, but you also learn a lot about yourself and the way in which you examine the world and the way you see things. And there's no shortcut. The shortcut is it doesn't happen. You won't get the result you want. Your readers will not be happy. And it may not ever reach your readers if it's not done right. It kills us, but you've got to follow the river where it's taking you at its pace, not your pace. (laughs) So let's talk about Dark Rivers to Cross. You have this character. You kind of knew you wanted to set a story in this area of Maine. And what? So what happened to me first was that I knew the characters right off the bat were Mm -hmm. a mother and her two sons. Mm -hmm. And I did not know any of the other characters who ended up becoming quite vibrant in the story over time, but I always knew that it was a mother and the sons. And I knew that she was running from something 
And I pretty much knew what she was running from, which I'm not going to tell. And I knew that one of the sons would want to know. And I knew that the other son would not. That much I knew because, again, in my counseling experience, I know that there are some people who have had an adoption experience and they don't really Mm -hmm. care to know. Other people are quite plagued by the unknown. And so I wanted to play around with what if there were two children and Mm -hmm. one wanted to know the backstory and one didn't want to know story and what if the mother was set about them not knowing there's enough right. there for an off you know I knew my setting and I started writing I also knew that I was going to have to go back and forth between the time that is present and the time where the story really takes place the origin story takes place so mm-hmm. I knew there would be flashback chapters and that's always tricky for a writer because those have potential to slow pace and I really wanted the turbulence Right. So I have to be very careful with the backstory. When folks read it, they'll see it's just it's folded in every once in a while, but it's not something that you get all at once because it's better to not get it all at once. Wanted the forward momentum of the search, the two young men searching for what she's hiding to be front and center. How long does it take you from ugly first draft to it's ready to send to the editor? So every novel I've written has really demanded its own timeline. And I think Mm -hmm. another thing that comes with having done this, this is number five, uh, is that I am now completely comfortable with what they tell me it's going to be. So I've Mm -hmm. written a novel in 15 months with very few changes from an editor, and I've written a novel in 10 years. So it's it's not that I'm working on that 10-year novel every single day, but that I keep cycling back and cycling back. So I'm completely fine with what the process of each one is because I do see them as art and that they have their own underpinnings that I need to be patient to hear. For example, I wrote Sea Escape parts of it first, but then when Life Without Summer called me, I did that one. And then I came back to Sea Escape, which was the right thing to do because I needed more skill for that novel. And I needed to know how to do it. What was your publishing experience like in terms of those first ones versus these last two? So I've been published really in every way. The way that I look at publishing is that each novel or each, you know, even nonfiction title Mm -hmm. will have its own publishing path based on what it is. So I have self-published a book on adolescent mental health. I've published a novel with a small press. I've been at traditional publishers, as I am now. And the publishing path must match what it is that was created. And so I, again, have been open to not only does each book take its own time, but where it lands and the best publishing vehicle for it will also change, depending upon what it turns out to be. Did Dangers of an Ordinary Night, that come out during covid It came out last November, so it was sort Mm -hmm. of the tail end. Much Mm -hmm. of my tour was virtual. Mm -hmm. and Some of it was in person, but much of it was virtual. But both The Dangers of an Ordinary Night and Dark Rivers to Cross are both with the same publisher, and they really share the same vibe. The domestic suspense angle is more prominent in these two Mm -hmm. pieces uh, than in my work previous. Um, And that's, again, because as I said to you, as the world keeps ratcheting up our stress levels, I think my my fiction gets a little little darker and more suspenseful. (laughs) What does your writing day look like? I always do my creative work first thing in the morning when I'm the most sort of receptive to where my brain wants to go with Mm -hmm. it. 
I feel that I'm creatively more open to possibility in the morning. So my creative work is always first thing. I get up early. I get up early pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm working on a draft of something, I touch it every day because I don't want to lose what it feels like to be inside the story. Uh, but once I get to the revision phase, I have a lot more flexibility. I can work later in the day. I can work in the evening. I can work in the morning because now I'm going in and it's more the science of craft where I need to put on my surgical gloves, so to speak. (laughs) Whereas the creative part really has to come from the deep unconscious for me. Do you use a model like, you know, say the cat or Michael Haig? Do you plot or wing it? How does all that work? So I don't use any one model, but I do Mm -hmm. when I'm working on a draft of something, I like to revisit those. I like to every once in a while, pick up a craft book. I've got one right in front of me called (laughs) a structure of story. Oh yeah, I've already started it. So basically what I like to do is just revisit craft books to remind myself, oh yes, oh yes. Oh, don't forget to do that. Because I do feel like you can go down these roads where you're writing to discover and then you're off track. Mm-hmm. And I would rather not be off track. I would rather <laughs> I would rather stay focused. So I read craft books to remind, you know, there's a line in Dark Rivers to Cross that says to know something and then to know it again. I really know that we all must revisit these things from time to time. So mm-hmm. I do that. And then as far as plotting or writing to discover, I do plot. I feel that there can't be a successful novel without some architecture and some clear focus on the characters central goals and their central mm-hmm. conflict and what's at stake for them so I would rather not do that after I have a draft or in the revision process I would rather do it up front and save a lot of time on my end plot as I go but I write to discover as I go as well what are some of the most important elements of good writing oh I think it's really that we feel for the characters I don't believe we need to like them but I think we need to empathize with them. I think if there's any compliment that I could get about my work, it would be that my characters made the reader feel something. And even if what they feel is anger or frustration or annoyance, I'm actually still okay with that because I want my characters to make you feel something, even if you don't like what they did. If you care enough to be upset about it, then something struck a chord with you. So I would say that for me, good writing is immersive. It's driven by characters that feel like real people, that we can inhabit their dilemmas, even if we disagree with them and imagine that, again, there's not a lot of clear-cut answers to this thing called life. And mostly we have to figure it out as we go. So I think that's what makes a good story. And I think that can be done in any genre. I really do believe that. Have you read any good books lately? Oh, always. I just read the trilogy by Edna O'Brien called The Country Girls. And it's set in Ireland in the 1950s. And it's three slim novellas, but they all go together. And we see these two young girls and their friendship evolve over time. And it's very prescient because a lot of the issues that they were dealing in the 1950s, sadly... We are once again having to face. So really interesting reading. Along the same vein, The Nine Lives of Rose Napolitano by Donna Freitas is also wonderful because it gives us nine different possibilities of a woman experiencing or not experiencing motherhood. And we get to see all nine 
play out in this novel. And the command of craft is extraordinary. It's always fun to see, how did they do that? You know? (laughs) And I think with these examples, the nine lives uh, of Rosa Napolitano, the structure is crazy. I mean, you got nine different scenarios of how she Mm -hmm. does or does not experience motherhood and you don't get confused. And then the Edna O'Brien trilogy, these are novellas that build over the course of two decades. So structurally, they're both super interesting for different reasons. What is the most fun? thing about writing? You know, I have done a lot in this publishing landscape and the most fun is always the first draft. It just, (laughs) it just is. It is the place where there are endless possibilities for the creative process. It's the place where you can get for me the most lost I can really be in the main woods. I can really be on that river. Somehow I can be somehow quite athletic, (laughs) which is not my actual reality. (laughs) When I'm immersed in that world building, that Uh is absolutely incredible. What advice do you have for our newbie writers? I would say that my number one bit of advice is to read widely. I can't say that enough. I think that If you love science fiction, then you should read literary fiction and short stories. And if you love speculative fiction, then you should read mysteries and thrillers. I think that if you read widely, you learn that craft is a science, but the art is the way in which you internalize it. So I would say read, 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 and read everything. You know, read memoirs, read nonfiction, read history. Because you will find that it informs your own storytelling profoundly. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you so much. To learn more, visit lynngriffin.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.